You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. And so this morning, I want us to begin by thinking about something that probably most people in this room have stopped thinking about, uh, and that's New Year's resolutions. And why I say that is, by the time we hit the end of January, there are only 33% of New Year's resolutions that are still active. That means two-thirds of them have already been given up. Uh, And whether that be because uh, they forgot that they made a resolution or ran out of time and or resources or money to pursue those things uh, or just gave up on it because it was too hard, we see that most people fail to endure in seeing the end of the resolution that they make. And so what they were so passionate about some four weeks ago is now something that is just not even really a part of their thoughts. As we reflect on that, it's kind of one of those things that we understand in different contexts. We know that when we look at a professional athlete, we understand the team of people that are present in that person's life, nutritionists, trainers, coaches, all of these people helping to build that person up so that they're performing at a peak physical condition. But when we move into other mental or physical or even spiritual aspects, we often fail to put together the same stamina or endurance that is needed to bring about the growth that brings us into an opportunity to be used at our highest abilities wherever God takes us. But for believers, we're not left alone in this path for endurance. We're given many things by our good and loving God. He gives us his word to guide us, and he gives us his people to strengthen us. And we'll see today that he gives us the gift of prayer to help us to endure the struggles of the world. And that's the big idea that we're going to be looking at this morning from the parable of the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18. We're going to see that God has given his people the gift of prayer to help them endure the struggles of the world. And in looking at this parable, we'll see how our spiritual success can often be equated to our ability to endure by prayer the hardships of the world. And so I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 18 this morning. And as you do so, I want to uh, set this up for us a little bit. I don't want to assume too much knowledge as we've not been in the gospel of Luke. We've been in some other places. So we've had some semi-topical sermons as well as walking through the book of Revelation. But as we jump into Luke chapter 18, we jump into a historical narrative. And this historical narrative is telling us the story of Jesus's life. And so Luke walks through that in the gospel of Luke, continues it with the story of the church in the book of Acts. But in doing so, we're jumping into another literary structure within that historical narrative. And that is this concept of a parable. A parable is a literary device that's used to paint a picture of a story that has a greater principle or point for us to understand. And we'll focus on that this morning with this parable of the persistent widow. But first, let's read our passage here in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 reads, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, 
I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And so as we view this parable this morning, it's important from the start for us to understand that this is a story that may or may not have taken place. But it paints this picture of reality with a teaching or a point that it wants us to understand. And we will see that this morning in our first point, which is the picture of the parable. All good pictures involve elements that have contrast or other opportunities for things to be brought forward or highlighted or seen against a different backdrop so that we understand the beauty of what they're doing. Luke does that here with his words as he sets up this situation. And this parable here is given to us in really two parts with two principal characters. And we'll contrast those two individuals this morning. It begins with this introduction of a judge. And we're not given a a whole ton of information about him except for his location and a brief description of his character or lack thereof. But since we're not given the name of this city, it does allow us to understand historically a little bit more about what's going on in this passage. And so in ancient Near East times, individuals would go to the city gates and they would meet with someone there who would have the opportunity to solve civil issues. This judge is acting in that sense, making himself available to resolve the conflict within a small town. It's important that a city like Jerusalem is not mentioned here because if Jerusalem were mentioned, there would be a separate system in the larger cities and cities such as Jerusalem to do such things. But Luke here by saying in this city, in a certain city and not really describing it, paints the picture that this person could be anywhere spread out through the nation of Israel, finding themselves doing such a thing. And so this judge in this generic city would sit there and men would come to him and he would solve their disputes and they would walk away knowing that this person had made a decision and they were to follow what had been decided. With this judge, we're also given a brief description of his character. He's essentially the exact opposite of a person that we would expect to be a judge. He does not really care about people, nor does he care about what God has said. Instead, he cares only about himself. We have here, essentially, the picture of the sons of Eli that we find in 2 Samuel 2, who neither cared about God or his people as he robbed God of the things that he was given and cheated the people from what they owed. This man was shrewd, he was cunning, and he cares only for himself. And we contrast that with this widow. Like the judge, we know very little about this widow. But based upon the culture and the customs and the practice, we understand that her coming in this situation displays quite a bit about her story and about what's going on in her life. Women in ancient Near Nimes had no religious or legal standing and therefore could not represent themselves in matters. So as this woman comes here to the judge and is not being represented by any other individual, it means that most likely she has no males left in her, in her family to do so. She's in a hopeless, helpless situation for her time. 
She's been taken advantage of in this situation and now seeks the restoration of what is hers. But in doing so, she really has no path forward that will guarantee that that will take place. Her case does not have to be heard. Her situation does not have to be resolved because of the situation that she's in. We have here a picture of what is very similar to what we read about in the book of Ruth. As Ruth and Noemi seek a helper or a person from their family to come and to resolve their situation. To take over their land, their livelihood, and to provide for them. Without this male heir, everything can be taken from them. And they're left extremely vulnerable. So the widow goes to the judge to seek restoration of what has been lost. To seek justice for her situation. And she continuously takes herself before this judge, knowing that he may never hear her case. She goes, and she goes, and she goes, asking only one thing, for justice. And in her continually coming before the judge... The judge initially shrugs her off, but then caves to her persistence in the constant presence of her in his midst. And so the parable then concludes by telling us how much more God will reward those who persistently come to him in faith, seeking justice for their prayers. The portrait's widows, uh, the portrait here of this widow and her actions is important because it highlights for us several observations about prayer. And I'd like for us to, to focus in on these this morning because they're things that this passage teaches us that we can also gather from other places in Scripture about what we do as we pray. Because the parable is focused on prayer, not just this woman coming to the judge. First, as the woman recognizes her dependence, so we also do as we come forward to God in prayer. She understands that there's nothing that she can do to fix her situation. If she could do it, she would have already done it. If there was somewhere else for her to go, she would have already gone there. But this is her last opportunity for justice. So she recognizes she is dependent upon this judge, and she comes before him knowing that. She also understands that he is the one with the true authority to resolve that situation. She could go to other places. She could try to do this on her own, but nothing will bring the lasting change needed to resolve the conflict in her life. Third, she displays the necessary persistence in coming, even knowing that she may never be heard. She consistently comes before that judge day after day, knowing that he may never listen, but knowing that she is doing what is right. And finally, she maintains her resolve. Anything less than justice is not acceptable. She knows her situation, how vulnerable she is, and anything less than the restoration of what she is due is less than acceptable for her. And so as we look at these four mindsets or these four observations on prayer, they allow us to understand in a greater sense how we come to God in prayer. We, like the widow, come to God understanding our dependence upon him, knowing that he is good, that he is God, he is the creator and giver of all good things. We understand that he has true authority or sovereignty over all of his world to do with it as he wills and according to his divine and perfect will. But 
when we move to these third and fourth ones, this is often where I see a very much a disconnect in our prayer life. Because the third ones focus more on that endurance and what our parable is teaching on. But we often fall short of the biblical teaching of prayer. Most people give up on praying for something within days of their first prayer. Most people pray for things once, maybe twice, and then move on. And while we might say that this means, hey, I put it in God's hands or I'm trusting that he's going to do whatever else it is, Usually, we go looking for other things to provide solutions. And when we look back at our parable and the way that it focuses and ties itself up, what that displays to God is not that we've given up on prayer, but that we have very little faith in him. This parable is about the endurance of our faith through prayer. It shows us from the start that it's not just about praying, but it's about praying and not giving up, which is the second point we have this morning, the principle of the parable. At times when we look at parables, we're left wondering what the point is. Even within the gospel of Luke, we could look at Luke chapter 8 and read verses 8 and 9, and we see there that the point of the parable being told there is veiled from many in the midst that are hearing it. But here in our chapter, Luke does what he began to do in chapter 14. As he introduces these parables, he gives the reason or the point for the parable at the beginning and then explains the situation. We must remember here that parables are not necessarily meant to be literal stories, which are recorded but instead are used as a figurative language to paint a picture of a situation with a point for us to take in place. So let's think of it this way. Parables are very similar to something else we have in our time called fables. Really the only difference between a fable and a parable is a parable uses people and fables use uh, non-human entities to tell their points. And so the greatest of all parables, if we're putting that under a category, the most well-known of them all time is the parable or the fable of the tortoise and the hare. And so Hopefully you're familiar with the parable or the fable of the tortoise and the hare, where we have a rabbit essentially chasing a turtle in a race. And so the two come to this point where they're going to race and they make a decision on what's going on. They set themselves out in this race. The hare or the rabbit goes out and starts off very strong, but gets uh, distracted by what's going on, kind of gives up, rests, looks away from the end goal. But the turtle always presses forward and teaches us the point that slow and steady wins the race. Now, you'd be interested to know how many people want to tear apart that fable. Want to dissect the little parts of it. Like, why would a turtle ever agree to a race with a rabbit? It just doesn't make sense, right? Don't we know that turtles and rabbits probably don't have a way to communicate with each other? They probably don't live in the same ecosystem. If a turtle is going to eat what a rabbit eats, it could make him sick, vice versa. All these different things, they get so focused on what's happening in the story that they forget the biggest point is slow and steady wins the race. It was told for that purpose, not for describing relationships between turtles and rabbits or anything else like that. It's not supposed to be a biology class about ecosystems. It's supposed to tell a story. And so when we look at our story, our knee-jerk reaction might be, hey, let's talk about the injustice that this widow is dealing with. Let's talk about the fact that the system around her is broken. Let's look into how we can provide for the vulnerable and how we can do the different things that God would want us to do to represent this individual. 
And while we might find that in other places of scriptures, that's not what the point is of our parable today. And the text tells us that from the start. We are called to look at the point of this parable, which from the start tells us it's about praying and not giving up. It's important to note it's not a method or a formula for praying, but is instead a mindset that we carry as we pray. For us to properly understand this, we have to see that prayer is not just about empirical results. It's not just about getting what we have prayed for, but about the faith that we display as we continually endure through the situations that are in our lives. We very much live in a results-based, success-measured world where we want to see the results of what's taken place. In the past month, we've seen a very large-scale picture of people claiming the power of prayer in the healing of an individual in the NFL. And so we think about DeMar Hamlin, and we see the situation that took place. And we've seen many people all over social media, all over the media, all over many places, claiming, look at the power that prayer has had in this situation. But... We also know that many prayers have gone out for people in similar situations that have not been answered. So how are we to understand what takes place with our prayers? Most people pray for things in a sudden crisis situation. Something has come into their life that they feel like, I can't handle this anymore. It's beyond my abilities. If it was able to be done by my own self, I would already go ahead and do it. But now I need something outside of myself to do this. And most of those crisis situations deal with people in unpleasant circumstances. And the prayer is, get me out of this. Whatever it is. Maybe it's a bad job. Maybe it's a bad relationship. Whatever it is, it's, God, take me out of this. Maybe it's a sickness. Whatever it is, we're saying, God, take me out of this. And if we're honest... When those prayers are prayed, anything less than that we would consider unacceptable. We go to God in a one-way form of communication, telling him, God, do this for me. When we look at what's happening here, and when I believe we look at other places in Scripture, we see that prayer is so much more than that. But the problem is, when we look at this passage and other passages like Luke 11 that teaches on prayer, we've misunderstood the purpose of prayer. We see this situation and say, well, look, the woman kept coming and coming and coming and coming and coming, and she got what she wanted. We go back to Luke 11, and we see the person there goes to his neighbor and keeps coming and asking and doing those things, and what he is asking for is given to him. So we think, if I come, if I ask, if I beg, and I plead, then God must give me what I've asked for. And sadly, when we don't see that take place, some people walk away from the Lord, saying, if God was real, if he loved me, he would have given me what I asked for. But he either must not be real or he must not care about me. Therefore, I don't care about him anymore. But they've misunderstood what the purpose of prayer is. We must remember that the purpose of prayer is not to change God's desires or will to ours, but instead to align us more with God's desire and will in our lives. 
God is not solely concerned with removing his people from hardships as much as he is shaping his servants through struggles. So when we look back at the stated purpose of this parable, we see that that aligns with what Luke has recorded. Luke is telling us that they're to pray and to not lose hope. They're to never give up. It doesn't say they're to pray and continue to pray until they get the answer they want. And honestly, that was the manner in which I first understood this teaching. And it wasn't just because I misunderstood this passage. It's because I misunderstood many other things about prayer. Like Philippians 4 says there, But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made to known to God, and he will answer it as you've requested. No. It's not what it says. It says, let your requests be made known to God, but the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. But because we go to this results-based empirical concept of saying, well, I want this in that moment, we've asked and we see and we combine these misunderstandings to think that our prayers are only effective when we get the results that we have requested. But when we do that, we look at prayer as a way to beckon a genie rather than a way to maintain a relationship with our creator. We fail to understand that prayer is a gift of God to allow us to endure in those times and to wait to see how God moves in our midst. That we would experience the fullness of the glories that he provides whatever the situation is. And a big part of why I know that I struggled with this for so long was I wanted to pick out these little places from the scriptures that talked about things and I wanted to hold on to those truths without viewing them in the fullness of what they're talking about. And we'll look at that here in the third point that we have here in the placement of the parable because we see more clearly the intentions of Luke and Jesus as they're teaching us on this when we expand the context of what is happening here. You know, one of my greatest pleasures as a dad is watching cartoons with or without my kids. And so I just love cartoons. It's just a simpler form of entertainment. And uh, one of my favorite ones right now is Bluey. Uh, And Bluey is just a phenomenal show. I don't care how old you are, you'll enjoy it. Just trust me. Get Disney Plus. It's worth whatever to watch this. Um, But it's so great because of the imagination that it teaches and the different ways it works. And there's usually like some really good points with what they're doing. And recently I had the opportunity to watch this episode where the two two children, Bingo and Bluey, uh, pretend like their dad was born yesterday. And so their dad doesn't know anything. And they have to help him understand everything about the world around him. And so their mom is wanting him to do the dishes, and he doesn't know how to do the dishes. He doesn't even know what dishes are. So he's like, oh, I don't even know what this is. It's a super convenient way to not have to do the dishes, right? Uh, And so I was born yesterday. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, So Bingo and Bluey walk with their dad through life. And they have to explain everything to him. They explain what food is. And he loves food. And so he goes looking for food. They walk outside and he's blown away by the big flaming ball in the sky. And they have to explain, oh, that's the sun. And it's going to be okay. It's going to stay over there. So they're walking around and they come across another guy on the street who's eating something. 
And remember, he learned that he loves food. So he runs over and he grabs the guy's food and he starts to eat it. And the guy's like, what, what, what's happening? And they're like, oh, it's okay. He was born yesterday, but he doesn't understand. And they're trying to explain it all away. And they're trying to like help him. Hey, dad, you can't do that. You can't just take people's food. And so situationally, he understands, I love food, but he doesn't understand when it's appropriate for him to have it. He doesn't understand the fullness of everything in his life because he was born yesterday and everything has to be explained to him. And so when we think about that, it displays for us the importance of the fullest context for us if we're going to be the most informed people about something. We have to understand everything that comes to the picture, not just the things that we want or the things that we even just agree with. We have to bring the fullness of everything to the front so that we can understand reality as it is. So the placement of this parable is key to unlocking its overall meaning and helping us to really understand what's going on. You might look down and say, hey, we're in luck. We started at the beginning of a chapter. So we've got the context. Chapter 18. And I would remind you that the scriptures added chapters and verses in the 1500s to help us with ease of coming to them because we don't read them in their totality like they were meant to be read. We read excerpts and clips and small verses at a time, reflecting on those, and there is great value to that, but we must see the fullness of the teaching of the scriptures. And so here we actually need to look back into chapter 17 to see what immediately precedes this and gives us a fuller picture of what is taking place. When we look back into chapter 17, we see that Jesus is describing the coming manifestation of his kingdom. And alongside that, he describes it in terms that the people are not really expecting. He talks about the hardships. He talks about the suffering. He talks about the rejection. He talks about the turmoil. He talks about the unrest that is coming. As we reflect on that, we see that Jesus will display for us what it means to be an individual who endures through prayer, looking to God for his grace. When we see that he represents an opportunity for his disciples to imitate his behavior and to so also not lose heart through the hardships and the difficulties that come our way. Lucky for us, we're privileged to know some of the prayers that Jesus has in the garden. We see that they're recorded in different places in the Gospel of Luke, as well as other places in the Scriptures. And they help us to see how Jesus walked into a difficult situation looking for justice inside of the fullness of the will of God. But before we get there, there's another opportunity for growth that I'd like for us to look at. And that was an opportunity that I had to walk through myself. Because as a kid growing up in the church, I hated when we got to a place and Jesus was the example. Of course Jesus is the example. He's perfect. He's God's son. If anybody can do it, it's probably Jesus. And I really struggled with that. Because if Jesus is the answer, then I can't do it. If Jesus is supposed to do this, then why am I even trying? And what I was doing in those moments was focusing so much on the human, or sorry, so much on the deity of Jesus that I was disregarding his humanity. 
that I was setting aside the fact that he was fully human, just like us, that he had emotions, that he had feelings, feelings of hunger, feelings of betrayal, feelings of concern, feelings of agony, different things that were uncomfortable in his life. I was disregarding the totality of him being a person by saying, yes, of course he's perfect, of course he's the right answer, of course he's what we should follow. And so as I grow in my understanding of his humanity and the struggles that he had there, and yet his ability to perfectly walk in communion with God and to live a perfect life, I understand now in a greater way how he is to be for us a fully focused pattern of what it looks like for us in our humanity to commune with God. For us to be in a relationship with him that is not marred by the effects of sin. And we know that this side of eternity, perfection is impossible, but progress and growth towards the example is possible. It is what we should strive for. And so as we look back at Jesus, we're going to see some parallels between Jesus in the garden and the actions of the widow in our parable. Because this teaching is meant to be viewed in unity with one another. First, just as the widow went before the judge repeatedly, Jesus repeatedly goes before the Father in his times of need. The disciples often found him wandering off into prayer alone. The night before his betrayal, at least three times, he goes off to pray and to commune with his Father, to seek his assistance. If there was anyone who could handle whatever the situation was in front of him, It was Jesus. Yet he shows his dependence. He shows his understanding of authority by taking himself before his father to allow him to display his utter dependence upon God. Second, the prayers in the garden are not just selfish prayers for God to remove him from that situation, but are prayers for divine justice to be had in his life. We can flip over a couple pages to Luke chapter 22, and we see Luke recording these words there in verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, And sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus desired God's will and justice above his own comforts, above removing him from his situation. Third, neither the widow nor Jesus ever questioned God's goodness or his abilities. The widow had every right to go to the individual, the judge, who was unjust, and to point out his flaws in his character, to attack him. Imagine in our day of social media, that situation and how that would look, is he would have the opportunity to be just taken out and have everybody say every bad thing about him. The widow could have done that, but it didn't matter to her situation. She knew that she was to ask for one thing and to remain focused upon that. Jesus asked for one thing and never questioned God's goodness, never questioned his love, never questioned his will. 
While these three parallels can enhance our understanding of what's going on in this passage, perhaps the greater focus that the placement of the parable helps us see is a more fuller understanding of the fullness of God's will in our lives. The justice of God is not always seen in temporal matters. The fullness of his character and his righteousness may not always be seen in our physical lives. And Jesus displays that. Because were Jesus' prayers in vain? Did he pray in the garden for nothing? You might say, well, an angel did come and strengthen him. But yeah, look at his situation right after that. He's sweating drops of blood. Does that sound like he's moving in the right direction of what his prayers are for in terms of God removing the cup of suffering from his life? You see, Jesus did not fail, nor did his prayers. And we have to bring that to our understanding of what prayer is and what prayer means. We must understand that the purpose of prayer is not as much about changing our circumstances as it is aligning our will to God the Father's. When we look at the greater teaching of Scripture, we see that this is also the case. We can do that by looking at the example of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We see Paul there is walking through the fullness of so many of the great moral victories and so many of the great spiritual things that he's learned from God and that he has experienced in the goodness of God. But as he starts to unpack that, he brings us to this point where towards the middle of chapter 12, he says, so to keep me from being conceited. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that I had received, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. And three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfect in weakness." Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So when we look at Jesus and we look at Paul, were their prayers failing? Paul says I pleaded with God three times for this. And as far as we know, this side of eternity, that thorn was never removed from him. But I think that his example, Jesus' example, helps us to correct some common misconceptions about prayer. The first of these is that people often say that prayers are not answered because of lack of faith. Prayers are not answered Because the individual doesn't have enough faith. But let's think about Paul here for a second. We can look at the guy's faith. We can see how his faith was formed, how it was grown, how it was established in so many ways. Just look back at chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians and read through that, the way in which God grew this man in his faith. So the problem with Paul's prayer not being answered in terms of our empirical evidence is not that Paul didn't have faith. Second, people often say that prayers are not answered because God lacks the ability to work or he lacks the desire or care for that thing. 
So let's think about Paul and his situation. This man has done miracles by the power of God in other people's lives to the extent that he was able to raise someone from the dead. He did many other miracles, signs and wonders, the text tells us, that displayed that he was a true messenger of God working out his authority on earth. So if God doesn't have the power to do those things, we could not say that Paul is doing that. So it's not that God lacks the ability or he doesn't want to use Paul. There must be something else taking place. Third, people often say prayers are not answered because we're praying wrong. If we knew how to pray, God would solve it for us. If we knew the magic words that we had to say in a certain order that would force God's hand to move, then we would be able to do it. But because we don't know how to pray, God doesn't have to answer us. But let's think about Paul. The guy knows how to pray. We can read his prayers, sometimes chapters long of his prayers, about the way in which we are to act as believers, about the way in which we look to God our Father, his sovereignty in our life, the way in which he works in our midst and through our weaknesses. We can look at the guy's prayers and we understand he knows how to pray. And if the text says he pled with God for this thorn to be removed, I believe he did that to the fullness of what he was able to do. Yet God still said No. God still said the thorn remains. And Paul unpacks for us in 2 Corinthians 12 what Peter displays for us in 1 Peter 10 or 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, where he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time of spirit is in them that was indicating what he predicted for the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they're not serving themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things to which angels longed to look. The experiences of suffering for the sake of Christ allows us to experience his glories in a greater sense. And I must admit that that's something that's often foreign to my desires. Do I pray for hardships in my life to experience God in a greater sense? I would say no. For the most part, I don't desire to be stretched or put in uncomfortable situations so that I have to rely upon God to be used, God to be in me, to be used through me, that his power is perfected through my weaknesses. Because that's uncomfortable. It's not normal to want to be in those situations. But what I know to be true is that when we find individuals that have that mindset in that situation, they display the fullness of faith that God seeks in Luke chapter 18, verse 8. They display the fullness of an individual trusting in God, knowing his goodness, knowing his love, humbly coming before him, telling them, God, here is my situation. And I know it still doesn't look great, as man looks at it, but I know many things about you. I know you're good. I know you love me. I know your will is perfect. And I know that justice will be provided in your timing in this life or the life to come. 
And so as we look at this parable and its teaching for us this morning, we see or hopefully begin to see how prayer is not to be decided or evaluated based on temporal empirical results-based system that makes the most sense to us. But instead, we begin to see it as an opportunity to center our minds and conform our lives in a greater sense to the continuity of the will of God. And as we do that, we can trust that though this side of eternity, we suffer unjustly in many situations, we know that the justice and righteousness and goodness of God will be restored to his followers in his timing. And as we do that, we display the faith that he desires to find in his followers, in his midst, and hopefully in our church and in our lives today.